0: about 10 miles northeast of Reform, Alabama. If you're interested in finding more sermons, you can go to our website at zionpbc.com, that's z-i-o-n-p-b-c.com, where you'll find all of our posted sermons, as well as a link to subscribe to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our website, which will update you every time a new sermon is posted. In the Galatian letter, Paul tells the Galatians that it matters what they preach. In fact, he says that anyone who preaches a different gospel than the one that Paul himself has delivered to them should be accursed. And he even says that these other gospels are not really true gospels. You see, the gospel means good news. And if the message is to be truly good news to the born again child of God, then it matters what we preach. Beloved, the message matters and we ought to be preaching the right message. Join us today as we begin to look at this timely topic regarding the true message of the gospel. i want to go to the book of galatians i know we've been in the book of hebrews mostly on sunday nights but tonight i want to go to another passage i believe it's a very timely passage i believe it's something that we need um, to remember especially in the day and age in which we live although it's always been important for god's children to keep these things in mind in galatians chapter 1 and verse 6 paul writes i marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. The topic I want to preach to you about tonight is that the message matters. The message matters. I want you to notice something that he says here. He says, I marvel that you're moved away from this preaching of grace. Unto another gospel. Now, if you just, if he had just stopped there, you might think, well, maybe there are multiple gospels out there. But notice what he does immediately under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to clarify which is not another. In other words, these other messages that are being preached out here that are being called the gospel are not really gospels. And it makes sense, does it not? Because the gospel, gospel simply means good news good news and and the truth of the matter is is we're going to see anything except the message of the ultimate and total and complete sacrifice of christ the grace of god the sovereign grace of god anything apart from the message of the sovereign grace of god is not good news to a sinner Amen. It, it, it will not sustain you it will not help you see the message matters the gospel message is important. And it matters that we get it right. Now, first of all, it, let me just say this. I believe we should, we should pay attention to this because it matters to God. It matters to God. You know, God doesn't intend to be misrepresented. He doesn't intend to be misrepresented. I've heard Brother Buddy use this before. You know, how would you like to be misrepresented? What if I got up here and said, you know, uh, Brother Buddy is a lying, cheating snake. <laughs> You know, but I love him anyway, and I'm sincere about it. You know, I sincerely believe that. He's, if he, would he come up to me and say, oh, you sincerely believe that? Oh, well, then it's okay. <laughs> no, Brother Buddy's going to want to set me straight. He's going to want to correct that. God doesn't like to be misrepresented any more than we like to be misrepresented. And God's nature is clear. In the book of Isaiah, the 45th chapter, let's, let's just read what God says about himself. In chapter 45 and beginning in verse 5, he says, I am the Lord. You know, God doesn't intend for you to think anybody else is God out there. Sometimes that means that you don't need to be part of some pagan worship. I, I get that, and he certainly means that. There was a time when pagan worship was very rampant in the ancient uh, near east particularly they had the ancient near eastern mysticism religions and the greeks and the romans they had all this pantheon of gods you had a god of war and a god of the ocean and a god of, uh, that was the chief god you had all these multiplicity of gods but and god doesn't intend for you to confuse him with any of those he doesn't intend for you to worship anybody but him but also let me just say in a modern sense there are those that worship humanism The philosophies of men, there are those that worship uh, at the altar of choice. There are those that worship at the altar of work, at the altar of recreation. Anything you get between you and God becomes your God. Now, don't misunderstand me there either. God's still God, (laughs) no matter what you think about Him. But God intends for you to think right about Him. He says, I am God. I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. There is no other God that you can compare him to. We'll see. Now notice what he says. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I think God's trying to get across the point that he's God, isn't he? And I think there's, that's something he intends for us to know. He doesn't intend to be misrepresented. In chapter forty-six, very familiar passage in verse nine, he says, "Remember the former things of old; for I am God, and there is none else. I am God; and there is none like me." I used this this weekend in talking about this. But you know, uh, in fact, we were talking this weekend at the, when we were uh, this past weekend when we were out of town down in Bay Springs Church in Middle Georgia. Uh, that uh, we had seen somebody there that reminded us of somebody here. And I told Sherry, I said, look at that brother. Don't you think he looks like so-and-so here? And, uh, and she said, sure enough. And then we talked about, well, he kind of looks like this other person too. And we, But, you know, we do that, right? We go out and we say, well, I met a guy out in Texas that he reminded me of somebody back here and trying to describe him, you know, you might use... Uh, he had hair like Brother John Morgan, or he, had, he was tall like Brother Buddy, or something like that. But let me tell you what you cannot do with God. You cannot compare Him. <laughs> there's, you know, you say, well, what's God like? Well, let's see, He's kind of like, no, He's not like, he's not like that God. Let's, well, Maybe He's like this, no, no, he's, he's not like that God. There's nobody to compare Him to, because He is God. He said, there is none, but there is none like me. You know, there's some things that we have that God doesn't have? You know, we got counselors, don't we? He tells us here in the book of Isaiah that nobody's been his counselor. Actually, over in Romans chapter 11, turn with me just for a moment over there and let's read about the New Testament description of God. Romans chapter 11 and verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You show me a man that says he's figured out God. I'll show you a man that's either lying or misapprehending the situation. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? Did God have somebody come up to him and say, hey, I know you're planning to create this universe. Let me show you how it's done. (laughs) No. You know, we've had counselors all of our lives. You know, uh, my brother and brother John Morgan are counselors at law. Sometimes you need help in a legal situation. Brother Neil Honey is really a counselor or a teacher in the medicine. He is. He's a doctor. When I have a, uh, an ailment, I go to him and I try to, you know, he, he counsels me on what to do. But God had no counselor or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. God is God. He is is the great God of this universe. And you know, that's what Scripture is, the ultimate and complete revelation of God. And it matters what we understand about Scripture because it's showing us who God is. You know, one of the problems people have with the doctrine of election is they misunderstand the nature of God. In some ways, they bring him down to our level. They say, well, God can do all things except save his people. That's up to them. That, that, tells me, that, that sort of reminds me of other gods out there in the pantheon of Roman and Greek gods. They could do so much, but not everything. Then, then there are those that accuse God of unrighteousness in, in, the elect, in his electing grace. They say, you know, that's the first, isn't that the first objection that's made in Romans chapter 9 over there when it says, he talks about the purpose of God according to election. They say, yet you, the people ask, uh, uh, is there unrighteousness with God? And you know what the answer is? God forbid. <laughs> God forbid. He goes on, by the way, to explain the sweetness of the doctrine of election. But here's the point. When you go to, when you go to any Bible doctrine and you uh, decide you don't like that doctrine, you're not going to accept that doctrine as true in your own mind, then what you've done is you've, you've mistaken or misunderstood the, either the doctrine itself or the nature of God. In that case, it's really both. Just flip a couple of pages back and let's just look at that for a second. In chapter 9 of Romans, in verse 11, he tells us that we're talking about the purpose of God according to election. And election is not of works, but of him that calleth. In other words, these children were still in the womb. They had not been yet born, talking about Jacob and Esau. And, uh, and, and, and the writer here, Paul, says that, uh, the, that the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. He's saying to us there that God already had his mind made up before they ever came out forth, of the, forth from the womb. And God had already purposed to save one of those children. And by the way, uh, we don't have time tonight. I think I preached on it recently, but there is a, uh, there's a question asked back in Malachi chapter 1, which is where this is taken from, wherein hast thou loved us? The people of it, you know, God said, I've loved you. I've, lo- I've shown you love. I've loved you with an everlasting love and that sort of thing. He said, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? In other words, you're questioning my love for you. He said, let me tell you how. Was not Jacob Esau's brother, yet I loved Jacob and hated Esau. The point he's making here is this, is that God's love is ultimately manifested in his electing grace. See, it's not about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a real thing, but God's grace, God's election is about his grace and mercy and love. Because you see, Jacob was just like Esau. Jacob had no more claim on the mercy and grace of God than Esau did. And by the way, neither did you and I. And that's how he loved Where has thou loved us? You might ask God, Lord, how is it you love us? Well, I'll tell you how I love you, he says. I should have not loved you. <laughs> I could have easily passed over you, but I didn't. I passed over Esau, I believe in this case representing all of the non-elect of God. And yet I love Jacob, representing all the elect of God. He said, what shall we say then is there unrighteousness with God? See, here's people who are questioning God's very nature. First of all, he says, God forbid. If you go back to Genesis 18 and 25... Abraham asked that question of God, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He wasn't questioning God. He wasn't uh, asking to get information or to remind God. He was just making a rhetorical, asking a rhetorical question that stated the very nature of God, and that's this, that God is righteous, and He always does righteously. So don't question it, even if you don't understand the doctrine. And by the way, he goes on to say that if you're questioning God's righteousness, you really don't understand the doctrine. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The electing grace of God, when you read about the doctrine of election, when you read about predestination in the scripture, it's about the mercy and compassion of God. Because we don't believe in double predestination, brother buddy. We didn't need God to predestinate us to hell. We were merely on our way there on our own. Adam sent us that way when he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we have since, in our human nature, happily embraced the Adam nature. See, God doesn't intend for his nature to be misrepresented. He does. It matters what the message is. It matters from his, his word about the gospel. You see... Here's one thing that we need to remember about God. We, we get, we get kind of lifted up with pride sometimes. And, you know, one of the biggest problems in any organization, and it can be a problem in church as well, is when people want the credit. You ever, you know, I've heard Brother Spann, Raymond Spann say this before. He said it, there's no end to the good we could do if it doesn't matter who gets the credit. If it doesn't matter to us who gets the credit. But you know, I'm just like everybody else. I like people to know what I've done. But there is one entity who can claim, has the right to claim all the glory, and that is God Almighty. See, God doesn't intend for His glory to be shared. In Isaiah 42 and verse 8, He said, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. God is not going to share His glory. And any gospel that takes glory away from God and gives it to man is a perverted gospel. In fact, it's not a gospel. It's not a true gospel. See, God doesn't intend to share His glory. And He doesn't intend for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the Godhead, to share His glory as well. You know, that's what the whole Old Testament was all about, according to Jesus himself. He said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. Those Pharisees had built up the law as the pathway to eternal life. They had built up keeping the law uh, proper uh, order in the, in the temple and that sort of thing as the way to keep, the way to get to heaven. The, the path of eternal life was through the law. That's what they thought But Jesus said, You can search the scriptures all you want to, but they're all talking about me. This law that you're putting up there as the way to heaven, this law that you Pharisees think you have a a hold of and and are the only ones that can disperse it, and you're straining at gnats and you're swallowing camels and doing that, he said, It's pointing to me. If you just read, you know, when Nicodemus came, I've thought about this in recent months, uh, particularly. You know, the new birth was not something new. I mean, it wasn't a new doctrine. It had existed from the time God said, When you eat of the fruit of the tree there, you shall surely die. Adam had to have a spiritual nature imparted unto him after he had eaten of the tree, of the fruit of the tree there. You know what he said? You know, Nicodemus came to him by night, and you know, the first thing The first thing that Jesus said is, he said, you know, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Now, I'm I'm paraphrasing, of course. He said, marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. He goes on to tell him how it happens. It happens by the direct, sovereign operation of the Holy Ghost, okay? And then at the end of that discourse there, he said, art thou a master of Israel and know not these things? You know what he's saying there? He's saying, you ought to already know about this you to already know about the new birth and the need for it, and, and how it happens, because it's been taught throughout the scriptures. We don't have time to go back there now, but there are places that are clear in the Old Testament about God taking the stony heart out of the flesh, out of the flesh and put out of the body and putting a heart of flesh in there, a tender heart to the things of God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. In fact, Jesus is the ultimate fact of all existence, and it matters how we see him. Do we see him as a successful savior, or do we see him as a tragic figure who did all he could do to get us as close as he could, but it's up to us to go forward? See, it matters to God how we view him, but listen. The gospel message, the message matters to us. It matters to us because, see, it affects our labors here. Remember what he says over in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 8, for if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? If I got up here, you know, I hear hear a lot of our Reformed brothers who are preaching uh, out there, and I'm not picking on them particularly, but I, I, I think we need to point it out that, A lot of our Reformed Calvinist brothers, they'll get up and they'll preach about the doctrine of election. And then they'll get down to the end of the message and say, now won't you accept him? Won't you do this or won't you do that? They'll even make belief a work. You know, belief is a work. (laughs) Let me just tell you this, if belief, if, if you got to exercise your, your will, that is, if that is part of, uh, of the salvation process, then, then that flies in the face of what we just saw over in Romans chapter nine, we didn't get there. We didn't read that, but over in Romans chapter nine, after he says, he saith to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. He then says in verse 16, so then it is not of him that willeth we're told all the time you've got to exercise your will. Even among, as I said, among some of the modern Reformed Calvinists, they say, well, you still got to believe. you still got to exercise your will. You know, the idea is, well, you're going to if you really are a child of God. That kind of sounds a little bit like absolute predestination to me. I don't know about you. If he's going to make you do something <laughs> there after he's born us again. But he said, it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, that's works, but of God that showeth mercy. Our will nor our works are involved, you see. Paul tells us in the 10th chapter of Romans about a people that are going about to establish their own righteousness. Now this is a people that have a zeal of God. they've been born again but they're going about to try to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of Christ and he goes on to explain to them that they ought to submit themselves to the righteousness of Christ not because they're trying to get to heaven by doing so but because he's preached to them the true gospel which is that Christ has already paid the sin debt now you know he tells in one place over there I believe it's in Romans but I may be off on that he says that that God has reconciled us through the death of his son and he said now ye be reconciled to God and what's he talking about there he's just saying listen the reconciliation has already taken place in the halls of heaven you're, you're, the blood of Christ has been applied to your case and God is satisfied with it now you ought to be satisfied with what God is satisfied with due to the constraints of time we will stop the message here but please join us tomorrow for the conclusion of this message